0: Well good morning. I've been gone for a couple of weeks. It was great to be away. It's really good to be back. Uh, I took my annual brother's trip. I've got three brothers. We, we uh, get together every year. We were in Atlanta this year. Then we drove down and spent five days with our mom. And so uh, we, had a, we had a great time together. But it's really good to be back. It is. Well, I got permission to share a a story with you today about a couple 's experience. It was about eight years ago I did a wedding for a couple uh, the The wedding was in late December, and after they got married, they moved away from Manhattan in those next few months. I kind of got word that that there were some problems in the relationship. And uh, had some interaction with them, but over time, things went from bad to worse, and their divorce was finalized that following October. And so the marriage lasted a little bit less than 10 months. And after I found out about the, the divorce, I called each of them, and independently, they each told me, they said almost exact same words, they said, I had a gut feeling that we shouldn't have gotten married. I had a gut feeling that we shouldn't have gotten married, and their experiences really, really influenced the way that that I do premarital counseling with couples. When a couple comes in for their very first, their very first uh, premarital session, <clears throat> I hear their story and hear about their relationship, and I, I typically tell them, tell them this, uh, tell this this story that I just told you, and I say, during your engagement, if you ever have a gut feeling that something's not right, don't ignore it. I don't, you don't necessarily have to break up. It's, it's not necessarily a crisis, but don't ignore it. It's always easier to deal with things before you get married than after you get married. One couple came in, this was a few years later, and uh, I gave them my little talk and, and told them about that couple's experience. I said, if you have a gut feeling, don't ignore it. And they sat there kind of passively, not much response. Uh, two days later, uh, the woman called off the engagement permanently. It turns out she felt trapped in the relationship. He was a bully. He was verbally abusive, all sorts of things. She just needed permission. And so I cracked the, the door just a little bit and she just busted through it. And uh, it was freedom for her. And uh, as you might imagine, he was not too pleased with me. And so... <laughs> He wrote me this long this long email, and, and as I was reading down this email, I kept thinking, dude, you're making my point. The things you're saying about her, the things you're saying about me, you are making my point. Well, we are in the midst of a sermon series called Alive and Well. We're talking about core relationships in, in our lives. Uh, today, we're going to talk about what the, the types of things that you need to consider before getting married. Last week Brian preached on on marriage and how to stay close once you're already married. And I would encourage you, if you didn't hear Brian's message last week, I'd really encourage you to catch it. You can go to our website and either listen to or watch the podcast. Just some very practical, very, very wise insights uh, about staying close in marriage. But today we're going to back up and we're going to talk about Some things you need to consider before getting married. If you enter into marriage without a a, a very clear vision for your marriage, uh, probably sooner or later uh, you will be blindsided, like the couple that I described earlier. Now, I realize that many of you here today are already married, and uh, you're listening to this message through that grid, and some of you are already embodying much of what I'll be sharing. Others of you would probably say, you know, my marriage is, is kind of in trouble. The things you're describing, I'm not living out. Uh, I would really urge you just to hear this message as an encouragement to seek God concerning your marriage. God's grace is sufficient. God can restore whatever whatever has been lost He can supply whatever whatever is missing so here's the here's the vision very simply a Christian marriage put on puts on display the love relationship between Christ and the church. that's what a Christian marriage is and that's a simple statement and uh, if you've been to church much you've probably heard that, but that statement will only be meaningful and powerful if you really understand how Jesus loves the church. If you don't really understand that, it will just be a vague spiritual, religious idea but we're going to talk about what that means. Ephesians 5 records Paul's most extensive teaching about marriage. And at the end of that passage, Paul quotes from Genesis 2. And so uh, before we look at Ephesians 5, I want us to look at Genesis 2 briefly. And this is a passage Brian mentioned last week as well. We're going to pick up the, the narrative. It's the creation narrative of Genesis 2.18, and Adam alone had been created. We read this, then, God, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. You need to understand that in the Bible, a helper is not an assistant that you tell to go do the things you don't want to do. In the Bible, a helper is someone who does for you something you cannot do for yourself. This becomes apparent in passages such as Psalm 54 4, where David says, God is my helper. He says, The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. And so you only need a helper if you have deficiencies. In Adam's case, he needed a helper to address his aloneness. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, and notice he he emphasizes their commonality, not their differences. The the, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then here's the verse Paul would quote in Ephesians. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. For this reason, since... The, the wife is God's provision for his deficiencies. This man was to leave, man would leave parents. And this is Moses writing years and years later. Uh, this man shall leave his parents and form a new union with his wife. They were to become one flesh. As Brian explained last week, uh, being joined to his wife can be translated, he would cleave to her or he would hold fast to his wife. The idea is that they would form a new bond. They would stick with each other until they were parted by death. And so uh, uh, that was, that was the, the purpose. Notice Moses' final comment, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so they had no shame even though they were unclothed. They, they, they In no way did they feel, I'm not enough. There was no reason for them to hide. And of course, everything changes in chapter 3. When sin entered, they immediately felt shame. They immediately noticed they were naked and they covered themselves. When we come to Ephesians 5, Paul writes about the way that husbands and wives are supposed to think about each other and how to relate to each other. Ephesians 5 doesn't address everything that husbands and wives need to know. It doesn't address the entire relationship. It has a very specific... Uh, very narrow focus, actually. And throughout this passage, he he toggles back and forth between talking about husbands and wives and Christ and the church. And as we'll see, it's not always obvious which he's talking about. Uh, But we'll come back to Paul's comments to wives a bit later, but first consider Paul's instruction to husbands where he quotes Genesis 2.24. We begin in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." Implicit in this command is that if a husband is not experiencing the fierce, sacrificial love of Jesus, there is no way that he can turn around and love his wife as Christ loves the church. In other words, he needs to, to experience it firsthand. He needs to understand that Jesus is zealous to make him holy and clean, Glorious, unstained, unwrinkled, and blameless. In verses 28 through 30, Paul teases out the application for husbands. So, husbands ought also to love their own wives, get this, as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church." because we are members of his body. And so you don't dismiss a broken leg, right? You don't cut your finger and just say no big deal. No, you it has your full attention. I got a tiny little splinter under my finger a couple weeks ago, the world stopped until I had had it removed. Paul says that's the way Jesus relates to his body, meaning those of us who are his followers. If you have pain, you have a need, you have some issue, his full attention is turned to you. He is that attentive to you. Jesus loves, nourishes, and cherishes every single member of the body of Christ. He is so identified with the church that it's accurate to say that he loves his own body, us, as himself. That's worth pondering. That's worth internalizing. You wonder how Jesus thinks about you? He loves his own body as himself. And so this fierce, refining, limitless love of Jesus becomes the example of, that husbands are to follow. In verse 31, he quotes from Genesis two twenty-four. For this reason, a man shall leave father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Here's the reason why a Christian man should get married. A Christian man does not get married because he's lonely, because he wants to be fulfilled sexually or emotionally. Those are byproducts of a healthy marriage. A Christian man gets married because he wants to imitate Christ. He wants to love his wife as Christ loves the church. He wants to be be that all in when it comes to his love for his wife. He wants to imitate Christ and sacrifice himself for her, pouring himself out on her behalf so that she might be everything God has designed her to be. The Christian man wants the gospel to be on full display in his marriage. Look at verse 32. This is kind of out of the blue. He says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, wait a minute, Paul. I thought you were speaking with reference to husbands and wives. And he says, well, yes, I am. But ultimately, I'm, I'm ultimately speaking about Christ and the church. And so a human marriage is a visible display of the marriage between Christ and the church. A human marriage is a shadow of of the reality that the church is the bride of Christ. An earthly marriage will one day give way to the heavenly marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage covenant, which is temporal, has to be seen in light of the new covenant in Christ's blood, which is eternal. Verse 33, "'Nevertheless, each individual among you also "'is to love his own wife even as himself.'" And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. I would tell anybody who wants to get married, this has to be your vision for your marriage if you want to have a Christian marriage, you have to have this vision. Your vision for marriage is to put on display the love relationship between Christ and the church. And so implicit in this is you have to have a vision for you having a Christ-centered life. You have to have a vision for together having a Christ-centered relationship. And you won't live this out perfectly. Of course not. But this has to be your pursuit if you want a Christian marriage. Now, this vision for marriage has many implications for those of you who are considering marriage or those of you who would like to be married someday. And uh, I've got six points, and so we're going to move at warp speed. If you're already married, you're going to recognize these are things that I should also pay attention to, okay? And so uh, uh, they're a good reminder for all of us. First, your marriage will be the most intense expression of your discipleship. In other words, if you want this Christ-centered relationship, if you want to put on display the relationship between Christ and the church, you have to be a follower of Christ. You have to be pursuing Him with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so, if you get married, your marriage should be the primary place where the gospel is on full display. Of course, not the only place. It should be on display everywhere but the most intense expression of your discipleship should be your marriage that's where you you bring your virtues that's where you pour out yourself loving as Christ loved and you, uh, people should be able to look at your marriage and conclude so that's what it means for Christ to love the church so that's what the bible is talking about your marriage should be your love for each other should be that fierce and that constant. And so husbands and wives need to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you so much so that you actually have the mind of Christ. You think about your marriage the way Christ does. Uh, Husbands and wives, uh, we need to keep in step with the spirit to the point where you actually display the fruit of the Spirit. Again, this is the profile of a great wife. This is the profile of a great husband. Uh, There aren't these mysterious principles of marriages you have to discover somewhere. It's about being the right kind of person. If you keep in step with the Spirit, you will be full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That makes for a wonderful, wonderful marriage, a wonderful relationship. And so if you want a Christian marriage, you need to be someone who's actively following Christ and you need, to, you need to marry someone who is actively following Christ. And I'm not saying that people without Christ have no virtues. That's not the case. I'm not saying if you're immature or if you, you are lukewarm right now that you have no virtues. I'm saying if you want to put on full display the relationship between Christ and the church, you have to experience him and walk with him. The second implication flows logically from the first. Since discipleship requires discipline and effort, marriage requires discipline and effort. If you're a follower of Christ, you know that, that your discipline is involved. Paul said in 1 in first, uh, first Timothy 4, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You don't just wake up one day and discover, wow, I don't know how, but I'm godly all of a sudden. No, you have to work out spiritually. You have to train. You have to discipline yourself so that progressively you you are godly. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 16, he said, if anyone wishes to, to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so if you want to follow Christ, if you want to be a follower of Christ, it requires discipline. It requires effort. And so uh, since since your marriage is the most, most intense expression of your discipleship, your marriage will also require discipline and effort. And so my encouragement is don't go into marriage thinking, you know, if we have a good marriage, it's just going to flow. It's going to be effortless. Uh, we're gonna, it's going to be intuitive. It will always be easy. You should go into marriage with the opposite mind. You say, if this is really going to work, if we're really going to honor Christ, we're going to have to engage our wills. We're going to have to be, we're going to have to discipline ourselves and deny ourselves. And so this means, of course, that before you get married, you have to already be in the habit of disciplining yourself and denying yourself. You have to already know how, that, how to do that before you get married. You know, all the married people in the, in the room would tell you that when you get married, you have no idea what will be required of you? you just can never guess the type of trials you 'll face, the type of hardships you will face uh, that 's true when you get married, and if God gives you children again, you have no idea what you will need to do, what love will demand of you as you raise as you raise your kids. When you take your marriage vow, your wedding vows, you, you basically are committing yourself unconditionally. You're saying for better for worse, for richer for poorer, in sickness and in health, I'm going to be faithful to you. And so it's it's this comprehensive commitment before you even know what it's going to cost you. And so you should enter into marriage assuming that it will be costly. It's worth it, but it will be costly. The third implication, if you don't want to deal with another person's sin, don't get married, okay? Get a dog. Dogs, dogs are great. Dogs have bad habits, but they don't sin, okay? Uh, people, on the other hand, sin. Yeah, y- if you get married, you are marrying someone so sinful that another had to die in his or her place, okay? And marriage is so intense, and marriage is so intimate, that sooner or later, probably sooner, your sin will surface and you will be amazed at how much pride resides in your soul. You will be amazed at how, at how selfish that you actually are. You will be staggered. You'll say, I had no idea I could be that petty about things that absolutely don't matter. Okay your sin will surface. And so if you don't want to deal with your own sin, if you don't want to deal with somebody else's sin, honestly, don't get married. There there are other options. And so your role is to participate with God, if you do get married, in your husband or wife's sanctification. Your role is to help him or her become more like Christ. And inevitably, this participation will involve helping your spouse deal with his or her sin. And that requires incredible amounts of humility. It, It requires you to die to self in ways you can't anticipate. And as always, Christ is our example how does Christ think about you when you sin? Does Christ point his finger at you and say, if I told you once, I've told you a hundred times, does he have that tone? Does he say one more time and then I'm gone? No, Christ woos us to himself. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And I'm not saying there aren't boundaries. There are boundaries in marriage. I'm not saying there aren't consequences for our sin. There are consequences for our sin, but you need to know that your spouse is for you and your spouse will sacrifice to see you become obedient to Christ, to help you grow up, to help you mature in Christ. So if you don't want to deal with somebody else's sin, marriage is not the relationship into which you want to enter. The next one's kind of wonky, but I couldn't think of a better way to say it. You cannot experience the beauty and power of what Paul teaches about marriage in Ephesians 5 unless you take seriously the rest of Ephesians. In other words, you can't just cherry pick, okay, the only thing I'm going to fix my life on is what Paul says about marriage. No, you can never pull that off. You have to understand what he says in the rest of chapter 5 and what he says in chapters 1 through 4 about your identity in Christ, about how God thinks about you, about what your salvation means, your standing in Christ. You need to understand how to live in the body of Christ. Chapter 6, you have to understand how to put on the full armor of God. There's anywhere you need the full armor of God, it's in the context of your marriage. And so, for example, in uh, Ephesians 5.22, that's where Paul tells wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Ephesians 5.22, as you know, comes right after Ephesians 5.21, where he tells the entire church, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. And so, whatever it means in 5.21, It also means in 522. If you don't understand how to submit to others in the body of Christ, if you don't understand mutual submission in the body of Christ, there is no way that submission is going to work in your marriage. And so the way I understand submission, if I submit to you, I'm basically saying, I am willing to receive from you whatever God wants to give me through you. The opposite would be, I don't want it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to receive it. Whatever you've got. I'm not going to take it. And so husbands and wives need to be experienced and skillful in submitting, mutual submission, before they get married. And so husbands, if you, if you have never submitted to anybody else, There is no way it's going to go well if you think your wife is supposed to submit to you. You won't understand the boundaries of submission. You won't understand that submission does not mean that if I submit to you, you're smarter than me, you're better than me, you're my boss, you can tell me anything. If you've never submitted to another person, you don't know how hard it is to submit. If you've never submitted to anybody in the body of Christ, you also don't understand how powerful And how beautiful it is when submission is done in a healthy way, what God can do through it. And if you're a wife and you've never submitted to others in the body of Christ, you will probably assume that whatever it means in in marriage is not good. It's going to squash you. It's going to be bad for you. And so again, if you want to understand what Paul says about marriage, you need to understand the larger context. God's word is so wise and it's so good and it's so beautiful. In context. Next, uh, engagement is a time to establish habits of obedience that you can cultivate throughout your marriage. So when you're engaged, that's when you need to build up habits of obedience. Sometimes couples mistakenly think, well, my, my fiance is kind of, uh, is kind of Harsh and demeaning and critical, but but mer- but engagement is a, a very intense time. It's a very stressful time. I'm sure that after we get married, things will get better. That's a red flag that you dare not avoid. Uh, generally speaking, things get more intense. Things get uh, patterns of disobedience get worse instead of better. It's much better to establish habits of obedience that you can cultivate and deepen. Throughout your marriage, and so one such area involves uh, set your sexuality. And as you may know here at Faith we have a set of guidelines that our elders have adopted uh, 25, twenty eight years ago that, that really reflect what Scripture teaches and reflect our, uh, our, our collective wisdom concerning marriage. and what we always tell people is that we 're really more concerned about the marriage. the wedding. So if you want one of our pastors to to do the wedding, I would like you to follow these guidelines. And uh, a wedding is pretty easy, honestly. I could get you married about five minutes. But uh, a marriage, that requires a lot of preparation. So one of the guidelines involves moral expectations and it reads this way. God has designed sex to be a beautiful expression of unity and pleasure Among married couples, and as an expression of commitment to God's design, couples will agree to abstain until they are married. And so that guideline reflects our understanding of Scripture that it's God's design to wait until marriage. And so we want couples to establish patterns of sexual obedience uh, before they are married so that they don't enter marriage with all sorts of guilt and confusion that accompanies sexual sin. And this is absolutely at odds. We know this. It's absolutely at odds with our culture. The prevailing thought in, in our culture is that, no, actually it's a great idea, to live together before you get married. Because that way you can find out if you're compatible, you can find out if everything works, you find out if, if it's, uh, it's gonna be a good a good match for you. But the research suggests, and there's actually research on this, the research suggests, and also our observation, is that living together before marriage really doesn't prepare you for marriage. If anything, uh, sexual relations, it's so powerful and so intoxicating that it tends to mask other issues that you probably need to deal with, create such a, uh, an intense bond that you just don't address other issues that are needed. And so we, we have never had a couple tell us that they wish they hadn't waited. We've had a lot of couples tell us that they regret not waiting and so that, again, we're just more interested in the marriage than the wedding. And so if this is an area of disobedience for you, I would just say that God's grace is sufficient. God loves to forgive and cleanse. God loves to make right things that aren't. Okay, that's five. We got one more to go, and I realize this message has been mostly a warning. Uh, count the cost. Of uh, getting married, but I want to end with some some gospel with some good news and that 's this: the new covenant in christ 's blood supplies everything you will need to thrive in marriage. It really does if you put your faith in Jesus, if you trust in him alone. And you, you say, God, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I accept that. I want to enter into a relationship with you. I want to be born from above. I want to walk with you through this life and into eternity. I want to be part of your kingdom. And God promises amazing things in the new covenant. The covenant defines a relationship. And in this new covenant, God promises things like this. He says, I will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. In other words, you will be free from the guilt and the bondage of sin. You absolutely need that in your marriage. God says, I will write my word on your heart. In other words, the teachings of Scripture won't be like all these arbitrary rules that somehow I have to obey. No, if, he, if you meditate on Scripture, God writes them on your heart to where internally your thought is, yes, yes. God's word is true. His commands are not burdensome. They're hard, but they are far preferable to the, to the alternative. And so the, you have this internal longing to live out the teachings of Jesus. You, you need that in your marriage. Uh, he promises in the new covenant to give you the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that hovered over the surface of the deep in creation, the Spirit that empowered the prophets, the Spirit that descended upon Jesus at his baptism, the Spirit that rose him from the dead, that Spirit dwells in you to guide you, to cleanse you, to, to lead you. God promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. So you will be part of the people of God. And so these new covenant promises are staggering they are are life-changing promises. They are sufficient for you in marriage. And so if you experience God as he is described in the new covenant, you will progressively become the type of person who can thrive in a relationship as intense and as intimate as a marriage. I don't know anything else that will allow you to thrive like a relationship with God through Jesus. And so I would say to you, if you want to have a Christian marriage, the best thing you can do is enter into this relationship with God through Jesus and then walk with Jesus as if your life depended on it. Because it does. It really does. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would... would uh, and press upon us the things we need to hear from, from these passages and from this message. God, I pray for those here today who have a desire to get married. Pray that you would give them a, a vision for their, their lives and for marriage that would really line up with, with your mind, with what you desire. And God, I pray that you will protect, that you will lead, that you will make very clear as people are evaluating their own lives and the prospect of marriage. God for those here today who are married we pray God that we too might be refined we pray that we might turn from anything that's not in line with your will that we might seek you all the more trust you believe that you're powerful that you're you're willing and able to do in our lives whatever needs to be done and God we so want to to honor you in this church we know that Uh, marriage is one part of that. We want people to see the gospel. We want people to see what a relationship with you is like. And so God, uh, only you can do this, but this is what we really want. So this is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.